1: Good morning, good morning, good morning. I want to drop this thought into you this morning. This is from Roy Bennett. Don't be pushed around by the fears in your mind. Be led by the dreams in your heart. I love that. Again, don't be pushed around, you guys, by the fears in your mind. Be led by the dreams in your heart. And that's, again, from Roy T. Bennett. That quote is attributed to him. I want to welcome you to this Saturday, October the 9th, 2021. So to our loyal listeners, thank you. If This is your First time tuning in to Off the Shelf. I want to let you know that you are listening to the Winning Book Radio Show, Off the Shelf. And thank you again for joining us this morning. We're getting ready to introduce you to a fabulous, fabulous author in just a few minutes. But first I want to ask you, we're we coming into, I, I cannot believe how fast this year has gone. Sometimes time goes so fast. And then I look back to January, February, and it doesn't seem like it's going that fast when I look at all the things that have happened, all the things I've done during 2021, thank the good Lord. But I, wanna, I want to ask you, d- despite what's going on in your life, like yesterday I was feeling so overwhelmed, I had so much going on. Do you take the time to sit still? Do you take the time to get out in nature? Do you take the time? I think a part of good health is not just eating, having a good diet and drinking plenty of fresh water and exercising and making sure you have – good, strong, healthy social connections. But rest, good rest, I think, is a part of actually being healthy. How how much do you put yourself on that priority list of taking care of yourself and proving to yourself that you love yourself? You might say you love yourself, but do you prove it? And so there's a book I wrote, Awaken Blessings of Inner Love, and it has daily tips, practices, really easy, because our world gets so busy, things you can do every day to keep yourself from tipping, uh, just one more thing you don't see coming could actually be the one. That, what did they say, the, cow, the straw that broke the camel's back? You don't want you don't want that, so you want to do daily, daily practices. So I encourage you to get a copy of Awaken Blessings of Inner Love by yours truly, Denise Turney, and see if it doesn't enrich and bless your life. Even if some of the techniques you might say, well, this doesn't work for me, there's so many of them, of them in the book. I'm sure if you practice them, you will start to feel better. You just will have more clarity about yourself. It will be a blessing to you, I do believe. Awaking blessings of inner love. And now, drum roll, now let us go and meet our very special off-the-shelf guest. And our special off-the-shelf guest this morning is Grace Salmon. And she is the author of the book, The Eve. What a title. She is a passionate storyteller who loves writing, and communicating, and her book, The Eve, is a compelling character-driven novel that is written to appeal to parents and to children, and the book's central theme, uh, the central theme of the book addresses this universal question, what do I want to be as I age and grow old? And and a little bit about Grace, and we're going to learn even more about her as we bring her on live in just a few seconds. Grace grew up on Long Island, New York, and she also spent many years in the Washington, D.C. area where she her two children, and even more, Grace established and owned an educational consulting firm operating in 32 states. She's an accomplished author and public speaker in the area of education, and she is excited to share a voice in her new venue, Literary Fiction. She lives on Florida's west coast with her beloved husband and a small herd of imaginary llamas. I encourage you to check Miss Grace Simon, and it's spelled S-A-M-M-O-N, out online at dot G-R-A-C-E-S-A-M-M-O-N.net, G-R-A-C-E-S-A-M-M-O-N.net. And we are absolutely honored to have Grace with us here this morning. i got to make sure I'm picking up the right line. Welcome to Off the Shelf, Grace.
0: Oh, Denise, good morning, good morning. I am thrilled to be here. I have so admired your balance between writing and living a good life, and the way you introduced our show today is just perfect. It also gave me just that little minute to sit still and put myself in a good place. So thanks for having me.
1: Oh, we're excited to have you here, Grace. The first few questions I'm going to ask you, I ask every guest who's come on off the shelf over the 12 years We've been on, this was one of my early lessons learned. I didn't used to do this, and then the readers started giving me feedback. So just to give the the listeners, not, not readers, listeners, just to give the listeners a little bit of background on you, the first three to four questions, again, I ask every guest on the show, just so the listeners can get to know you a little bit. So to kick it off, Grace, can you tell off-the-shelf listeners, we know long out of New York, where you grew up. And what, what was life like for you growing up on Long Island?
0: Oh, I love that you asked that because I grew up, I'm 68, so I grew up in what I used to think of this little Ozzy and Harriet, Leave it to Beaver, Donna Reed, anybody who's either my age or listens to reruns or on television, knew this little kind of perfect world, uh, at least on the surface. So I grew up in Long Island, New York in Garden City, outside of New York City. My dad was a television director. So it was very very magical. But you know, that was also just on the surface. I'm pretty sure that Ozzy and Harriet and Leave It to Beaver had some things going on behind their closed doors too.
1: <laughs> yeah, and that's for, that's for all of us. Was it is so Long Island is how close were you to our for our listeners who are just uh, romanticized New York City. How close did you live to Manhattan? And did you get in and out of the city a lot? And there's just so much arts and culture in Manhattan. Did you get a lot of that exposure growing up?
0: I really did, and I was very lucky. Long Island is called Long Island for a really good reason. It's a three-hour drive from one end of Long Island to the other. And Long Island is shaped like a fish. So if you think of like from the fish's mouth to the tail, that's a three-hour drive. Where I grew up is kind of like where the eye of the fish would be. So I was only 30 miles outside of Manhattan. So we got in and out of Manhattan all of the time. Uh, My mother is a daughter of immigrants, as is my father. Uh, My mom graduated from high school. My dad did not. But he was an incredible television director and inventor. Uh, He invented the first wireless microphone, the first shoulder television camera. So we were very involved in TV and the arts. And that was then very important to my parents to get us exposed to that.
1: Oh, my goodness. So do we know any shows that your dad worked on or any movies he worked on?
0: Uh, If you're really old than me, when television wasn't even in existence, he did lots and lots of radio shows. So in the old days, when the door creaked or the horses clomped, that would have been my dad in radio. And then when he came back from the war, he went to work for CBS Television, and television was brand, brand new at the time. And there was a show by the very famous war correspondent Edward R. Murrow And they still give out awards for journalism in Edward R. Murrow's name. And Ed Murrow did a show. Of course, I called him Mr. Murrow. But Mr. Murrow did a show called Person to Person. And it ran for six years uh, from 1953 to 1959. And my dad was the director on that show. And so my dad got to me almost every... Yeah, it was so cool. He was, he got to meet almost every famous person that was alive during that time. And I was the show's mascot because I was born the year the show, the, yeah, the week the show opened. So I was far too little to really appreciate things. Like when he did like a puppeteer, Sherry Lewis or Captain Kangaroo, that was really wonderful. When he did, you know, President Truman and his wife, yeah, that wasn't quite as impressive to me as it is today.
1: You know what, Edward Morrow? Anybody in journalism knows that name. <laughs> anybody yeah, who's ever sure. worked in anybody who's ever worked in journalism—that is—that's why I was going like, "Oh wow! Oh my goodness!" So when you were when you and were you know, a it's kid, funny, you, no, go ahead.
0: I, go ahead. I was just going to say, and the funny thing, Denise is. You know, I grew up knowing Mr. Murrow, who always had a cigarette in his hand. And when Dad would bring us in to see Mr. Murrow, I would always stop at Captain Kangaroo's office because that's who I really wanted to meet. Oh hang out my
1: with. goodness, you bring him back! He's <laughs> oh my god! Oh my goodness! Interesting. Yeah, I remember watching Captain Kangaroo when I was a kid. So you did have some all oh, those wonderful experiences that this bread. At the time when things are happening, you don't realize how rare it is so you grow up and other people are like, oh, my goodness. Now, so when you were a little girl, you're getting exposed to all this. Your dad's involved in television. He's he's inventing and creating things. What, As you're observing all this and the your other, other experiences, what did you tell yourself? What did you want to be when you grew up, when you were a kid?
0: Oh, you know, that. I was just having this conversation the other day because I know we'll talk about my book in a minute, but my book is about older ladies, right, and finding ourselves at any age. And I was talking with a friend of mine the other day about the difference in a woman's experience just in your lifetime and my lifetime and the women 10 and 20 years older than I am and 10 and 20 years behind me. I wanted to become a TV newscaster desk anchor and there were no women at that time, and I would, you know, I, my father eventually moved from CBS to ABC and helped establish news bureaus, and I got to meet a lot of the desk anchors, and I wanted their job, and I remember my mom who just sat me down and said, Grace Marie, you can't do that. Who will put dinner on the table for your husband and children?
1: Wow. And I this just went, oh, okay, I'll, I'll do something else. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Yeah, I, 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 when I was a kid, I think I said I wanted to be an astronaut, just wanted to do something different. And I was told women, mm-hmm. you, girls can grow up to be astronauts. <laughs> it's amazing that how things have changed, and you, you now you don't hear that. Back then you were supposed to grow up to hopefully have a man ask you to marry him, and then you took care of a house and raised kids. That was like the... Or maybe you became a nurse or a school teacher, and that was it. It's really changed. Those were your that, options. That is that is such a a blessing. Now, as we start to move more towards your writing and your books, who or what inspires you to pursue writing and, and book publishing?
0: I think you have to be a lover of reading to want to write. And I remember when my Uh, Brother Bob, when I was very young, maybe eight, maybe ten, gave me a book called Black Beauty about the horse. And I was amazed that somebody could put words on a page that just made me want to sit and miss Christmas dinner and just sit and read that book. So I've always been a reader and a writer. I would write horrible little stories about what my brothers and sister had done, just totally ratting them out. (laughs) But... In my very first job, I always wrote. And then I had a job where I was an educational consultant and my business partner at the time said, you need to write this down. You need to write a book. And even though I had written several articles, I had never written a book. And I thought that was beyond my ability. But I sat down and I wrote it, and then I wrote three others. And uh, then when I basically began to retire from that, I thought now what do I do? And my novel came to be. Ah,
1: so you kind of go with the flow. You can and I, and I like that. You just let things happen one step after another. Before I ask you about about the, we start talking about the ease, I wanted to ask you when I was researching for your interview, this was something that jumped out at me. That you travel, you've traveled a lot. How have your travels impacted your writing?
0: Very much so. Even in my educational books, when I traveled for business, I traveled to 32 different states, as you said in the intro. And the difference between our various cultures within our communities, within our broader country, is so amazing. There's an old, old New Yorker cartoon, which was on the cover of New York Magazine, has an image of new yorkers of which i was originally and it sort of has new york as the center of the world and right on the other side of the hudson river there is nothing and the that was my image growing up like if you weren't from new york you weren't from anywhere but i had the opportunity to work in the 32 states on native american lands in rural bayous of louisiana And we are such a rich and diverse country, and I want my life to be rich and diverse as well. I also had the opportunity to travel to Tanzania, oh, 12 years ago, I think. And that was such a humbling experience to stand on the rim of the Rift Valley, which is where they think human beings became human beings. And it is so humbling. So, how am oh I to stand there?
1: You know I've heard people who've traveled a lot they they, they it just it changes you it, it you you are a different person if you only stay in your small town with everybody who thinks all the same you you're gonna miss so much, and you'll think as we all do, we think we know it we know more than we actually do. but if you never get out of your little small town and get around people who have thoughts different than yours, man, are you ever missing out <laughs> and so, it's just, I think it's a blessing to get out and travel. Now, be, be, the next, before I talk about these, I want to ask you one other question. Because the Eve, that's not your first book, correct? So I wanted to ask you if you could tell us the title of your very first book and what that first book was about.
0: Yes, the first book was called Creating and Sustaining Smaller Learning Communities. It was very solidly based on high school improvement within the United States. So the first three books are all in education. The third book of my educational books is called Battling the Hamster Wheel. And that was also about how do we get out of the rust of what we're doing in high schools to make them better environments for teaching and learning. So the Eves is an entirely uh, different uh, branch of my writing And to follow up, though, on what you were saying, that's one of the reasons I love books. We talk about the opportunity to travel and how it changes us, and it certainly changed me, but I'm also very aware that it was a gift to me that I had school systems, whether they were on Native American lands, of which I got to work on many, or inner city schools in Detroit, or La Fouche, Louisiana, which is a small parish. That was a gift. So books allow us to transport in other ways as well for those of us who don't have that opportunity.
1: And, and, so, and so agree. And what ways, uh, uh, Grace, how has your writing deepened since you sat down and wrote your very first book, which they were nonfiction books focusing on education, and the time that you spent writing The Eve?
0: I think I really like writing both nonfiction and fiction. Uh, Sometimes if somebody gives me an article to write, I can knock it out in a minute because I just love the juice that goes on in my head and on my hands when I hit the keyboard. Writing a novel, though, is much harder for me it's interesting because there's lots of research in both venues. In the educational field, I have to do lots of statistical research and make sure my theories work. But on the educational side of the house, I have to make sure that I don't put something historically inaccurate or I have to create a appropriate tension between voices. So I have to do a lot of research between characters, between events, In the eaves, I talk about an event called Juneteenth, which, of course, now most of America, thankfully, knows about. But prior to a year and a half ago, probably most Caucasians knew very little or nothing about. So I had to find a way to bring that into the conversation, both that it was historically accurate, told a story, did some teaching, because I still love to teach, but also allowed there to be a conversation that wasn't always comfortable between two characters.
1: Uh, now, where did, where did you get the ideal, just listening to you talk about the story, and as I was researching, where did the ideal pop into your head for the book The Eve?
0: The story of The Eaves is very much about the psychologically complex Jessica Barnett, and she's at a crossroads. She no longer has a relationship with her children. She's let go of her career and her body, but not her vodka, not her lives. And she doesn't know who she's going to be. Her parents are deceased. And I found myself at that crossroads. I had adult children who didn't need me as the mom anymore. My parents were deceased. I was winding down that crazy 200 days a year of travel And I said, who am I going to be now? And as I did throughout my life, I sat down and said, okay, what would that look like? And all of a sudden, this character, Jessica Barnett, emerged. And I got to say, okay, who was her younger self? Who does she want to be? And I nestled her life experience between the youngest character who is 15 and the oldest who is 94. And the characters are white and black and Latinx and Native American. There's a lesbian couple. And they all intersect in Washington, D.C. and this wonderful farm in southern Maryland.
1: Wow. You really, you really, see, this is where your travels, once again, this is where your travels. Are playing up. Why did you decide? And I also want to ask you. You said writing a novel, you find it more challenging than writing doing nonfiction. Uh, so I want to ask you. This sounds to me like it would be quite the challenge. Why did you decide to write a multi generational novels? And are there plans to turn the ease into a book series?
0: The multi generational part was in part because. I missed the opportunity to still speak to my parents. And I was very, very blessed to have an older woman in my life who was kind of a surrogate mom at the time. And I realized how wise she was. And I realized at that moment when I was at that crossroads, there were conversations I wish I had with my parents that they weren't available to me anymore anymore. And there were conversations that I really wanted to have with my children, but they weren't ready to listen. So I began to craft what would that look like. Um, so that's why the multigenerational aspect of it, because I think our elders are so important. And I think the pandemic, quite honestly, has given us an opportunity to listen to our elders a little bit more. And in so many cultures, elders are important and not so much um, in certain segments of American society. And many people have asked me if there's a sequel. I see it clearly as a Netflix series, and it's so funny because if somebody said, okay, we're, we're picking up the eaves as a Netflix series. Could you start writing the additional episodes? I think I could do that, and I think I need that approach because I have not sat down and done it um, to write the next book, if you will
1: interesting. Now, I got to tell you, Jessica Barnett sounds so interesting to me. And in a time, I know with COVID and uh, a lot of women dropped out of the workforce because it was just too difficult juggling, really being working at a daycare almost with your own kids, your school teacher, daycare worker, mom, and you got a full-time job all at home. It's like there's no separation. You, You get no break. And I guess it was very overwhelming, and I can only only imagine uh, for a lot of people. So they said, I cannot do all of this. And, you know, there was a time when people thought a woman could be a superwoman and do everything, and then you hear women, honestly, who quite accomplished, say, no, you, you can't do everything, so you're going to have to prioritize and pick things that you're going to focus on, all that shit. Jessica Barnett, when you opened up uh, with the, to today's interview and you said she was – not talking to her kids. I can't imagine that. I don't know why I, in my mind, and, but I hear adult children say, I haven't talked to my mom in like 10 years or I haven't talked to my dad in 10 or more years. I just can't imagine it myself. Um, what makes her What happened with her? Was she close to her kids when they were young? I just find that very interesting for some reason. And was her and her mother's relationship ever strained? What makes her so psychologically complex and interesting?
0: Oh, she is one hot mess. And I think I am so blessed to have a great relationship with my kids now. But I know so many people who use the expression, I walk on eggshells around my children.
1: And they wow. may say, oh,
0: I didn't talk to them for a while. Oh, and it's, it's a different, different journey today. And I, I did go through a period of time where I didn't talk to my children. And it was gut-wrenching, absolutely gut-wrenching. And I didn't understand it. And I think that's why I also put that challenge in front of Jessica of how does she heal that? Or can she even heal that? And uh, the book has very big plot twists. So there's death and there's adoption and there's uh, changes in place and there's surprises. The tagline of the book is, when our stories are told, everything changes so when Jessica goes to meet these old women and there's an older gentleman there who needs to be played by Morgan Freeman I keep saying that (laughs) he just needs to he needs to call me but um, when she meets the older women and begins to chronicle their oral histories everybody's life changes And a big message of the book is we are never done. We may think we are done at a certain age or even with a certain relationship, but we are not done until, my friend Jack says, until we fold our hands in the box, until they fold our hands in
1: the box. Wow. Who would think that? You know the same thing if you end a relationship. You think, I was just telling somebody, even if you say, I don't like working with this colleague and I'm, I'm, I'm out of here, I'm moving to a different department or I don't like this company and I'm moving to a different state, I don't like this worship center, I'm going to a different place to worship, and then you look up ten years later and you're looking in the face of somebody you thought you would never see again. That, that is interesting. Uh, but you, we don't think that. We think once we're done, we're done. Now, how old is she? She just sounds very interesting to me. This book almost could be character-driven off of Jessica. Something about her is very intriguing. How old is Jessica when she meets the women who make up the E's? How old is she? And tell us about the initial impact, the ver- very first initial impact these women have on Jessica. And and you know what, before you, hey, just, before you do that, I also wanted yeah. to ask you, can you describe her personality? Is she a, is she hardened at this point? Is she hardened? Is she like a, is she soft, almost naive-like? Or is she a hard woman? I mean, I'm not putting up with nothing. She doesn't trust anybody. What's she like at the start of the story, Jessica?
0: I would describe her as broken. I don't do bitter well. Of all the things that I don't do well in my life, and I tolerate not particularly well, are people who are bitter or hardened. Uh, I think you, you know, I wish everybody who finds themselves bitter can find a way out of that because I think that just ultimately eats away at you. So Jessica is broken. She is hiding. She has a beautiful row house in Washington, D.C., which is based on the house my daughter lived in for several years. And it's just north of the White House. It's close to the National Zoo, for people who know those areas. It's in a very um, Latino, uh, Latinx community. And she is hiding in that townhouse. Copies of the Washington Post pile up on her porch. She has trying to renovate her house but can't quite do it. She hasn't finished her doctoral degree. She's almost sixty years old. And she is just a broken person. And it takes her bossy friend, uh, Sonia, that who says to her, You are hiding and today that hiding stops. So I wanted it also to be about the power of girlfriends, right?
1: Yes, yes. Oh, oh my goodness! It, this Jessica, again, her character I think could help just drive this story. She sounds so complicated, but also uh, intriguing. So th- this this story takes place. Can you give our listeners? Um, oh, how old is she when she meets the women who make up the E's? And what's her initial impression of these women? What's the impact they have on her? Friend tells her no more hiding. How old is she when she meets someone? what's the initial impact they have on her?
0: So the book takes place over only about a year and a half, so she's almost 60. And she really doubts herself. She constantly uses the expression as she meets people, oh, that person is immediately likable. And what she doesn't realize about herself is she is immediately likable. She's very disconnected, as most of us are, how people perceive us. So she goes down, and she meets these women, and she's intimidated, and she doesn't know what to say, and she's really only there because Sonia tells them, or tells her she has to go meet them, and the women are very dri- character driven. The whole book is very you you ca- characterized it so beautifully. It is a very character driven novel. It is also driven by place. So the D.C. house is important. The farm in Virginia is important. When Jessica goes to Tanzania, that is important. The women, the older women, are very different. They don't know each other that well. They have come to live in community at this place called The Grange. The oldest is 94. She's a former nun who left being a nun to adopt children. Uh, she's, a, she's an old white woman, she comes across as stern and nobody you want to spend time with <laughs> and yeah you do not want to spend time with her but she grows to be one of my favorite characters because she's such a straight talker, she, she tells Jessica the same thing, you are so wrong headed, you are writing our oral histories because you think our lives are over And if you think our lives are over, you're wrong. We are still creating and contributing. And there's a character who is deceased. Her name is Joan. She's African-American. She's part Native American. She's married to the Morgan Freeman character who went to Howard uh, Medical School. And although she's deceased, she has a presence in this community. And people talk about her and the legacy she left behind.
1: So and there's oh,
0: a white. Go ahead.
1: No, no, no. Go ahead. Go, go ahead. I want. I got another question. I want to ask you? But go ahead.
0: There's a white woman who has the beginning of dementia. There's a lesbian couple, and they're a mixed race couple. So everybody has a story, and everybody's story matters.
1: So how did this this group form? How did the, how did this group come together? Was did they meet at work? Did, well, they're all different ages. Did they all work at the, at the same community event, the same community? How did these, all these women come to know each other and, and start meeting, meeting, having these meetings?
0: Well, you know, you're an author and have written so many wonderful books. I think that authors just have people talk in their head. And originally there were multiple women, far more than I had, and I couldn't keep them straight. So I had to develop a way that the women met. So there's Tobias, the Morgan Freeman character, and his wife, Joan, who owned this property that was given to their ancestors back in the 40 Acres and a Mule time after the um, Civil War. And so he, there's, he and his descendants live on the land. His daughter is uh, a lesbian who's, mar- who's married to a white woman. And Joan gets sick, and her cousin comes to help her dying, and some other characters who live in the community come and uh, help support that. The lawyer who is an old Italian lady who is modeled on the woman who uh, is still at 92, important to me in my life, she's the lawyer who helps set this up as a um, communal property. So wow. they all come.
1: No. No, they friend. all come together to live
0: in community because they don't want they don't want to go to an old age home. There's a young woman who um, Sherry Belafonte would be perfect to play this role, um, <laughs> or not that I fantasize about this, Denise, but uh, there's a younger woman who's too young to live there, but she has brain cancer.
1: Oh. How do you bring the the woman who is this beast? How do you bring her, introduce her into the story, and how do they know it's her?
0: The way it happens is Joan, who's deceased, was a painter and very, very kind, and she and Tobias had an amazing love affair. And when Jessica first goes to the Eves, she's unbalanced, unsettled, And she goes into Joan's studio just to kind of gather her thoughts. And Tobias is there asleep with his long legs stretched out in front of him and slouched down in a chair with his wallet behind his head so that he doesn't get any hair oils on the couch because that's what Joan would have wanted. And Jessica goes and reaches to touch something. And Tobias says, please don't touch that. And he talks about how this room will always be her room. And he talks about three portraits Joan has painted at different points in her life. And they each have an inscription on the frame. And I loved what you said before, because one of the inscriptions on the frame is, Go with the flow. Uh, And you referenced that before.
1: Wow. So, and then and then little I guess little things happen. he's probably the one who lets helps let them know it was her if something happens that 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 was that was my uh, his his wife i'm I'm guessing now now, do we have like a little romance building also in the ease if you could tell off the shelf listeners who is Roy, and what is Roy's relationship to Jessica?
0: Roy is one of my favorite characters to talk about because he is the least fictional character in the book. He is, and people don't like that when I say this, because he walks in, when he walks into a house, he always says, greetings, greetings. He plays the trumpet. He cooks. He can build a house. He is this Renaissance man. He's um, significantly financially settled. He's not wealthy, but he he started. He used to be in Fortune 500 companies. He dumped all of that, and he's created this refurbishing house place uh, business. And he is refurbishing Jessica's house, and he's so patient with her as she says, "Well, let's." He'll say, "Let's redo the children's rooms," and she will freak out, saying, "No, we can't touch those." So he does something else, and it's a metaphor for Jessica. Rebuilding her own life and wow. putting certain things to bed in her life, and the reason I say he's the most fictional character in the book is because he is wholly based on my husband.
1: Oh my goodness! How sweet! Oh my goodness! So that you know what they say as as a, as a writer, and I tried when I was first started. I said I'm not putting anything of me except for Portia was based on some real-life experiences I had. But I said, I'm not going to put anything of me in my novels. I will not do it. And then people would read my novels who knew me, and they would say, oh, that's you, or you're like that. And I said, oh, my gosh, there's no way. I don't think <laughs> to be a, 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 whether you're a writer or a musician, you're writing screenplays, whatever, how do you as an artist, a painter, how do you completely eliminate yourself from what you're creating? I don't think, I don't think you can. I don't think it is possible to do that. Roy sounds like a he sounds like a very important character in the book. As and it sounds like a story that's going to have a a good ending. And I love how you say it's for children and a and and adults. How we just all we don't stop growing and learning when we hit twenty one or thirty. It's an ongoing process. And I and I love that message that comes across in the Eve. Uh Grace, what was the most fun part about writing this story?
0: The most fun part is when the talk it, and I bet you know that as an author right they, they when they were in your head i when they oh talk in your
1: no, head. you know what no i i used to i no. used to- have dreams with uh, when I first started writing, but that has and I wanted it to stop. But I know other writers who tell me that <laughs> happens to them. But no, it doesn't happen to me. Not any thankfully. But, but also, you enjoy that. Well, good. Okay, so that was the most fun part when they're talking in your head. and They're telling you what to write?
0: In some ways. Or I remember waking up one night when Deirdre, who's very, very ditzy, was having this conversation with the other women. And I was dreaming it, but I woke up laughing. Wow. That was, that was a delight. That was a delight.
1: Interesting. That's like an extra benefit, uh, an extra benefit just to being a novelist to to working on this story. That's, I feel like it's a different part of us coming through. So that was the, the your your engagement with the interactions with the characters that like is coming up through your subconscious was what you you really enjoyed. Was there any part of actually putting that on paper? That you enjoy was it the dialogue was it uh, fleshing out a certain character that you enjoyed? I just
0: like the whole process of writing. There is something that, and it doesn't matter, Denise, if I'm working on fiction or nonfiction. There is something that happens in my brain between you know what happens when it comes down my neck, down my arms, and taps right onto that keyboard and pops up on my screen that I like. And it doesn't matter if it's an email or a novel or another book or a technical piece. There is something about that process that I find um, magical. I love doing the research, no matter what the research is, because I'm always so fascinated by what I don't know.
1: Interesting. Now, can you tell us, on the flip side... I know you love just writing, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. Was there any part of the story that kept you up as an author that kind of had you a little bit like, hmm, stumped?
0: There were, and I think that's a wonderful part. Um, authors frequently have what they call developmental editors or beta groups. And I knew the beginning of the story and I knew the end of the story, which is very, very dramatic. Some people love the end. Some people hate the end. Most people cry at the end. I knew those pieces. The middle was very unclear to me. And I had a beta group of readers. And there is a part of the story that happens very early on where Jessica gives up a child, a young boy for adoption. And my beta group kept on saying, when are we going to get to meet him? And I was like, oh, you're not going to get to meet him. And they're like, no, it's really important. I was like, no, it's not. That's not the story. And they kept hounding me and hounding me until I went, does Jesper, who's his name, Jesper need to show up? And that was a big dilemma about whether he should show up or not.
1: That's one of the, um, for our listeners who might be writers themselves who want to start writing on their very first story, you know, they might have a story burning inside of them, but convincing themselves they can't do it. That's one of the things. And so you worked with a beta group, and it it can be helpful, especially with somebody else who's an experienced author. They know what really works. Because not only do you have to write the story, and I want to talk about this later, in the interviews, we come down to like the last seventeen minutes of today's show. But I wanna, I wanna also talk to you about like getting the word out. It's not just that we, we, you're writing a story. If you plan to earn an income, whether it's part time or full time, uh, uh, just from writing novels, you're gonna have to sell, sell those novels. So uh, somebody who's experienced novelist, and this is for our listeners. Who are thinking about writing, or maybe written one or two books, and feel stumped? Like the books aren't selling. That uh, another writer can maybe even tell you that's a great idea. I, I like the concept, but try maybe perhaps you try this approach. It'll help you to engage more readers. Or maybe somebody can say, you know what you mean, but it could confuse the reader if you say it that way. That's where the beta groups. And, you know, the part where you might get stumped in your story development, that's where they can be helpful helpful to you. All shared, the book is out, and you have got these fascinating characters. Not only are these characters fascinating, if they're still alone on their own, like if you took it into a series and you just focused on Jessica, and then one you just focused on Joan, and one you just focused on Roy, these characters seem so strong, and they have so much depth. To them that that could make people want to read just to introduce themselves to these to these characters all said uh grace what have readers been saying the plot the storyline the backdrop the characters what's going on with miss jessica what have readers been saying to you about the east after they finish reading the story
0: Oh, I'm really blessed that you asked that question, and I'm really blessed by the readers. I think you're straight on, by the way, about the need for beta groups, and we can talk, if you like, in a minute about what it's like to get a book out and what it's like to get a book out in the world. But in terms of the reviews, first of all, I have to say, anybody who leaves a review is a gift to any author. And on Amazon, Goodreads, BookBub, Kobo, Any place, and you can just cut and paste and cut and paste, but it is critical to our life to have reviews. I'm very, very blessed in that I am tracking at about 4.5 stars on BookBub and Goodreads, and I think I'm at 4.9 stars out of 5 on Amazon. So people have been loving the story, even if they're really challenged by the plot twist at the end. Lots of different kinds of reviews, Denise. The the idea that we are never done. I had a wonderful conversation with a woman who had finished it and said, I am going to pick up the phone now and I'm going to call my child who I've not talked to in eight years. Uh, they talk about it being character-driven, place-driven. They love the plot twists and turns. And I think it's it's just a story that seems to grab people from many different directions. The other thing, and this is kind of a bridge to other things we may talk about, is I love hearing from people when they are reading my book. It is not at all uncommon for someone to send me a direct message on Facebook or Instagram or to send me an email uh, from my website and just say, oh, my God, I can't believe that just happened. What were you thinking? (laughs) And I I, I answer every single one of those. Oh, how I zoom awesome. to book clubs. I I yeah, I zoom to book clubs. I I love talking about this story because we are never done and when our stories are told everything changes.
1: Wow, when our stories are t- Tell me what you mean by that. You said that before. What do you mean exactly when our sto when our stories are turn- told? We are never we we're, we're changed, we're never the same. What do you mean exactly when you say that what do
0: you mean by that? I think I mean, I think I mean two things. One is many times we keep ourselves hidden or we live a role. And I wanted Jessica and the old ladies to have given up those roles. So I wanted us to have honest stories, to honestly convey who we are to people. You did a wonderful interview with uh, Laura. I forget her last name, but she wrote the book Flaunt. You did that yeah. interview recently, and there were so many nuggets of how to be authentic um, from Laura and her book, Flaunt, in that uh, interview which you conducted with her. So part of it is if we're honest and we tell our story authentically, it gives us the gift of not having these roles to live up to anymore. And then the flip side of that is if our stories are told and then listened to We all understand each other better. And particularly in the last two years, we could probably pick ten topics of which we have not understood each other well on. And I want us to say that if we really listen, we may not agree, but we at least build that understanding. So when our stories are told, we change, and those we listen to change.
1: And I'm so glad you, you answered that. Thank you. And that you're so right. You are so right. I know where I, where I work, uh, they do encourage dialogue, discussion groups, discussion forums. And they've probably, somebody up there has the probably done research work where they see the impact of, let's just listen to each other's stories. And it does have impact. Because we walk around thinking we know more than we do. All, all of us, I think, walk around in our own head thinking we know more than we do. And then when you hear somebody else's story, like in your book, The Ease, even even the fictional characters, uh, it, even if it's fiction, it kind of opens you up a little bit more. When you hear people tell a story that's not like yours, they don't have maybe your beliefs, your viewpoint, but they still are a loving human being. <laughs> we are have value. It, it, I think there's goodness in that, I really do in that storytelling. Uh, it, and it kind of launches into my next question, and I wasn't intending this, but when and why did you start the Storytellers Podcast?
0: Oh, that's a wonderful story. I was, talk about never being done. That's a huge surprise to me. I have been really lucky in that. I think I've done maybe 50, 55 interviews about the Eves now. And a woman named Dr. Gail Carson interviewed me on her show called The Spunky Old Broad. (laughs) And great title, right? S-O-B, Spunky Old Broad and uh, Gail was 83, I think, at the time, stood all of about 4.4 4 feet 5 inches, tiny woman, and called me to interview me on two things. The first half of the interview was about the book, and the second half was about me being an entrepreneur, starting multiple companies, and realizing that my characters have really taught me that I am not done because part of writing the book was very much, okay, I'm going to write the book. I'm done. Go back to being retired. And Gail called me about a week later and said, I loved our interview. I want to offer you your own radio show.
1: Wow.
0: And I went, oh, no, I can't do that. And she was like, well, why couldn't you do that? And so she gave me the gift of the storytellers, and I've – it, it's exhausting and it's hard work. As you know, you do so much wonderful research for your guests, which is why it's such a gift to be on your show. But it's a lot of work.
1: And yeah, she gave me,
0: right? Mm-hmm. And it, it gave me uh, the gift of the show. And she was supposed to be on my show on August 9th. And she mm-hmm. passed away on August 8th. Oh. So I never got to give her the gift of being on my show, but she gave me the gift of my show.
1: But you're sharing her story. <laughs> you're sharing her Absolutely. story. Absolutely. And other places where I'm sure. Oh, what a fascinating! You, you, how we step into things that we never and we never intended, had no intention of it, and we just step into something. It is truly amazing how that how that happens. I, we, we're running out of. We got eight minutes to go, and I'm, I'm I really, really, really so many other questions I wanted to ask you now. I wanted to ask you next, what is Metromania, the great train ride through Washington, and why did you create it?
0: Metromania was one of the most fun things I ever did. We worked in, this is my education side of the house, we worked at Anacostia High School in Washington, D.C., which is featured in my book because it is the first school I worked in with such great love. The graduation rate at that school was 19%. One-nine percent. These are kids who lived across the river, from and every community has that, right? Across the river, the other side of the track. So they were a stone's throw from the nation's capital and probably had never crossed the river to do things like see the magnificent Smithsonian or the Library of Congress or anything else. So we created a scavenger hunt train ride where they had to learn the metro, get around, go into office buildings, learn how to shake somebody's hand, and say, give me a brochure from this museum. And it was, a, it was a not intimidating thing. We put the kids in pairs, and there was a board game that actually went along with it, so they got to play the board game to learn how the city laid out ahead of time. Then we did it in real life, and they went all over the city. PBS actually wound up doing a documentary on it called oh my Across goodness. the River. It was so thrilling. This goes way back, though, girl. This goes back to 92, 93, but we turned the graduation rate in that high school around for a short time from 19% to 93%.
1: Oh, my goodness.
0: And more importantly to me, teenage pregnancy dropped, and we buried, the first year I was there, the first year I was there, Denise, we buried four black boys, and the last year we did not bury any.
1: Oh, my gosh, and the, the, thank you for what you did. The impact, I'm thinking about Marva Collins and how she turned. So many kids, they said they were mentally retarded when she got through with them. Some of those kids, they were thinking, are they geniuses? She really, really, mm-hmm. it, it's amazing when somebody, oh, my goodness, you you probably had an impact on families that, that if you went back to see, oh, my goodness, that is absolutely amazing. Thank you for that work that you did and what you can do. Oh, it was a gift do. to
0: me. You're you're welcome, but it was a gift to me. Thank you.
1: Can you share three to four, definitely wanna for our listeners who chomping at the bit who are writers and they want to know how how do you do it? How is Grace getting the word out and getting these reviews, et cetera? Can you share three to four steps that you take that you found to be effective at getting the word out about your books?
0: I'm actually trying to figure that out, and put that in a concise format um, in a book called Battling the Hamster Wheel, Struggles with Getting Your Book Out. So I'm working on that in my head. I think a couple of things are really important. Depending on the age of your listeners, they'll either think this is a great recommendation or seriously, that's so stupid, everybody should know that. But because of my age, I really didn't think social media was important. And in the last year, it has become vitally important. I post every day. I post strategically. Uh, Sometimes it's about my book. Mostly it's not. It might be about writing. I've joined several writing communities. So first of all, use Instagram, use uh, Facebook. I don't use Twitter and LinkedIn as much as I should, but those are important places. I think that joining Facebook groups that are in like genres are important. So I'm a member of the Women's Fiction Writers Association and Bookish Road Trip and the Right Review. But if you're a mystery writer, there's Blackbird Writers. If you're a historical fiction writer, there's, you know, find those. There's uh, LAMP. I'm blocking on that wonderful Facebook group. It has LAMP in the title. So find a Facebook group that is of like-minded authors, so that you can ask questions, some, some that you'll, you would be embarrassed to ask anyplace else, but we all have those questions. So find those groups. I would hire a publicist who, know, if you can afford to, I would hire a publicist who can help you get your word out. And you can find someone for $3,000 a month, or you can... Find somebody for six hundred dollars for six weeks. And I'm happy to share that kind of information with anybody. On my website, uh, you can always reach me at grace at gracemon dot net. You can direct message me. i I love interacting with people who want to um, get their story out. You started your show today with, you know, follow the dreams of your heart. I think that if you have a story, as Maya Angelou said, if the worst thing that for an author is to and she said it way better than me. If you have a story that needs to get out, that is the worst pain for an author if that is not out. So if you need help getting that out, send me an email, send me a direct message. I'm happy to talk to you.
1: Oh my goodness, you are so you're so open and inviting and really enjoyed having you on this show before we wrap it up. Can you tell off the shelf listeners where they can get a copy of the Ease in your other books?
0: The educational books are you can still all get on uh, Amazon. They're under Corwin Press, but you can just Google my name, Grace Salmon. Said like the fish, but spelled S-A-M-M-O-N. So just find me on Amazon there. You can certainly get a copy of the Eaves there on Barnes & Noble. Bookstores will be able to order it for you through um, Ingram Sparks. They probably won't carry it in the bookstore, but any bookstore can order it for you.
1: And then you said you're on social media. You're not on Twitter. What, how do people, if they wanted to, connect with you on social media other than going to your website, gracesalmon.net, How else do you have a do you have a handle on your like on Facebook and Instagram that people can find you by?
0: Absolutely, I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn, but not often. On Instagram, I'm at Grace Salmon Writes, as in Writes Books W R I T E S. On Facebook, I have an author's page, which is also Grace Salmon Writes, as in Writes Books. But most authors, honestly, we have found it's just easier to be engaged with people on our profile page, which is Grace Salmon. There are four Grace Salmons. Um, I can't remember what my current – I think I have a blue shirt on in my current page.
1: Okay. <laughs> We have had the absolute pleasure. Oh, my goodness. If you love characters and plot and just, I mean, this story sounds so fascinating from so many different angles. Uh, The ease by Grace Salmon, S-A-M-M-O-N. If you guys are going over to Amazon or Apple Books or Barnes & Noble, or Google Books, and you're looking, want to find out the Eves, and it's E-V-E-S, the Eaves by Grace Salmon, again, S-A-M-M-O-N. If you love character-driven stories and you you just love where you see the characters develop and the the story also develop and unfold, I really encourage you to get a copy of the Eves, again, by Grace Salmon. You can visit her online at gracesalmon.net, G-R-A-C-E-S-A-M-M. O N dot net. What a fabulous, fabulous author and a fabulous story that E's. and y'all gonna have to we gotta meet Miss Jessica in the E. She sounds very complex and intriguing and very interesting character her and see what happens to her and Roy and the other characters in the story. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Grace, for taking time out of your day to be here with us on Off the Shelf and to all of our listeners who tune in from, I mean, all over the world from so many different ways to catch Off the Shelf Books Talk Radio. Thank you to our loyal listeners and to those of you who might be tuning in for the first time. Please set, set a reminder on your calendar, Saturday, 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, you're going to catch Off the Shelf Books Talk Radio so you can enjoy wonderful authors like Grace Salmon Thank you, thank you, thank you so much. And as I always tell you, you are incredible, you are awesome, you are fascinating. Please go out and create a fabulous day for yourself. Grace, I'll shoot you an email with a link to the show when it finishes streaming. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Bye for now.
0: Thank you, everybody.